0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And when you've turned there, go ahead and stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Excuse me, when the Spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the Father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the Father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning.
1: All of you Dad slipped in. I see it now. The first service was bare. Not this one, though. It's okay. I would have been here, too. Uh, happy Father's Day to all that are in the room. Uh, glad to have you. I am thankful that you're here and not on a boat uh, because Jesus may meet you out on the sea, but he's certainly here, uh, for sure. So, uh, my name is Ty Gaston. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church, and uh, like Scott said, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Mark, Uh, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, jump right in. I've actually been really looking forward to this text a lot. Uh, I have, uh, a couple weeks ago, I got asked to, I got asked to preach, uh, kind of last-minute, court was really sick, and so he, he asked me and gave me the choice. He was like, hey, you can either uh, use one of your sermons that, uh, that you—because I, I keep like two or three just in case, because in case, in case anything happens, I want to be ready. So I keep like two or three in the back pocket, um, and he was like, you can either go with one of those or you can keep moving forward with uh, with the series, and I knew that if I had uh, used one of my, my back pocket sermons, then uh, I would have had to I would have had to push this text and so I wasn't doing it. I was I wanted this one and shameless about it. So I have been looking forward to this, chomping at the bit. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and we will move forward. So if you would bow your heads. Father God, we come before you today and we lay all of our all of our lives, all of our hearts, anxieties, fears, worries, our lack of faith, our overconfidence. We we lay it before you. And so, God, as we approach your word, could we, would you please help us to do so with humility? Would you help us to, to do it with uh, with love and desire for you? And God, if there be any, any of us in this room that lack faith and struggle to believe, God, I pray that you would meet us here this morning. God, your word is the only place that we can go. And as we go there, we pray that you would bring us, uh, you bring us life, you'd bring us peace and joy. Uh, where we can't find it anywhere else, God, Your Spirit, Your uh, Your Word tells us and promises us that it's in Your presence that there is fullness of joy. So, God, help us help us to find that this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, uh, Court preached on the Mount of Transfiguration and. Uh, there's a lot that's happening there because it, on that mount is a, this is a line of demarcation in Christ's ministry because from that mountain he will then proceed on to the cross. It's where he's going from. And, and there's this moment prior to the mount where Jesus is healing the disciples and, or he's healing a blind man and the disciples aren't quite seeing it, then he shows them again, He heals them fully. and it's this moment where the disciples, clearly they only see him in part. But once Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up to the mountain, they see him in full for who he really is. And there's this incredible moment that these words are only used to describe Christ in this way here on the Mount of Transfiguration one time in the entire New Testament. And it's, it's when it's talking about what Christ looked like when, he, uh, when this happened. The text reads that Peter, James, and John were taken up on the mountain of Christ and he was transfigured before their eyes. And prior to that moment, they, only, they had only seen him partially. But then the text says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and that no one, not even those that made laundering their profession, could make something so white. And, and Now, it would be really easy to pass that over, but we need to remember that Peter is struggling to put into words just how other and set apart Christ is. Just how holy and pure and other he is. Peter in that moment doesn't want anything in your mind to read that Christ is like Moses who's up on the mountain with him or like Elijah. Peter, now, admittedly, in his own account, he makes that mistake. He makes that mistake by saying, okay, well, how about I just make a couple tents? One for you, Jesus, one for you, Moses, one for you, Elijah. And that's why uh, there's so much offense that happens there because what's really going on is that Jesus being so radiant, so intensely white, it's showing that there is no one like him. There is no one like him on earth. And it's the only time that these phrases are used in the New Testament to be called radiant and intensely white. Peter couldn't even, I mean, he did the best he could to describe what this looked like, but he didn't. He wasn't able to. We joked about this a little bit in our home group that you get a little bit of Peter's personality here that he just, he can't sit still. He just can't be. He doesn't know how to how to rest. Because in that moment, he describes him as radiant, intensely white, not even something that a launderer could do. But then he goes on to say, I didn't know what to say, so I just started to ask if I could build tents. It's a, Peter doesn't know how to just be in the presence of God because he feels like he has to do something, feels like he has to say something. You get a little bit into his personality there. But this is why it was so offensive that Peter would try to make tents for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses because unintentionally he was lumping Christ into the same category as these these two men. And I understand what Peter was trying to do, but he was missing the point. Those men were good, faithful men that God had bestowed a special call and grace to, but they are not the same as the Christ. Moses may have pinned the law, but he was not going to fulfill the law. Elijah may have spoken the word of God and never experienced death, but Christ was the word of God and had the power over life and death. And those are significantly different attributes. It's vitally important that disciples knew and that we know that Christ is no ordinary man. And in order for us to understand this text this morning and why Jesus responds the way that he does, we have to get that part right. That Jesus is no ordinary man that could be lumped into any other category. He is other. He is set apart. He is holy. He is the God man that has existed for all of eternity. He did not have a beginning. We have to understand that Jesus is the king that reigns regardless. And he's the God incarnate, who every knee will bow, regardless of whether or not you believe in him. You will bow your knee. He doesn't need our affirmation, but when we have this proper understanding of Christ, we begin to see things as they ought to be. We'll be able to see what's in this text for us, and also in the text later on. So let's get started. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 16. Verse number 14 says this, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? So if you're in our Exodus series, this should come as to no surprise to you and and sound a little bit familiar. Uh, When Moses was up on the mountaintop, uh, communing with God and received the tablets of stone, he came down to chaos happening. Jesus, now descending from the mountain after communion with the Father, also comes down to utter chaos. Now, they they don't look the same. Uh, I think we can agree that having a conversation, a heated conversation, versus uh, worshiping golden calves and then having to grind those down and drink them is a significant significant difference in scenarios. But the principle is the same. And the fact that the scribes were this far north of their normal policing ground shows just how concerned that these men were about Christ preaching and teaching. Now, one thing that is missed here uh, in the ESV translation that I think is important to note here is the text says, "What what are you arguing about with them?" And it says that Jesus asked them this. And I think the when you read it at first, you first think, "Okay, well, Jesus is talking to the disciples. That dis- he comes down down the mountain, he approaches the disciples, and he uh, they're clearly arguing about something." And he says, "What are you arguing about with them?" But what? Most manuscripts put in here that is important to note is that he's not talking to the disciples, he's talking to the scribes. In in most manuscripts, what you see is that he it says it doesn't say that he asked them, it says that he asked the scribes. And the reason why that's important is because at the end of the day, we need to understand that God is going to fight his enemies for us on our behalf. That's where he starts. He's not a mean, chastising father that goes after his children who are out of line first. He goes after the enemy that is trying to hurt them. That's important. We see this in the book, uh, in in the book of Genesis at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Uh, everything ha- everything uh, happens with the uh, with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They betray. Sin comes into the world. Yes, God does address Adam first. Yes, he d- he addresses Eve and then he addresses the serpent. It's common. It's commonly said that well, Adam. Adam gave man the curse and Eve gave women the curse and the enemy had his own curse. The problem is, is that man and women are not actually cursed. They experience consequences of their actions. That's for sure. But only the enemy in that moment was cursed. And so there's a difference in the way that God engages his children versus how God engages his enemies. And so it's important to see here that when Jesus comes down and is confronting the scribes, he's confronting what they're doing by taking advantage of disciples, of weak-minded men. And they're taking advantage of it to to thwart the minds of God. Now, there's no doubt that the scribes are mocking the disciples over their failure to heal the boy, uh, probably because uh, they use the lack of success as an opportunity to question Jesus's authority. And this is a common work that the enemy uses against the kingdom of God. Uh, and we see this even to today. How do you go after Christ? Well, you go after his people. Uh, if you undermine them, you undermine him. And it wouldn't take you long to start hearing and seeing this happen in our society if you just paid attention. Our society is filled with detractors that desire nothing more than to neuter the advancement of the gospel. You'll hear things like, Christians are hateful. Christians are bigots. Uh, Christians shouldn't act like that. I thought you were supposed to be loving. And because we allow detractors to get the best of us, we start to hyper-focus on our own abilities. You start questioning your own faith and whether or not you actually believe. Am I, do I really believe in Christ? I'm not acting like him. I'm not being as loving as he's loved me. Maybe I just don't believe. Or you start to vindicate yourself as we see with the disciples, where they start arguing uh, just how good they are and really how bad the other person is. And that's usually what happens. You either uh, sulk and worrying about what you're not, or you try to galvanize where you're at and then start to character, character attack the other person. They started with a character attack to you, so you gave an eye for an eye. Usually happens in one of those two, one of those two ways. And it's true, we ought to exemplify a godly lifestyle and try to model after Christ. But the point of the gospel is not that we're perfect and we ought to defend ourselves or that we're just not good enough and therefore should sulk and await our punishment in hell. That's not the point. The point is that we are sinful people that cling to a sinless Christ. The answer is yes, I can sometimes be rude. Yes, I shouldn't act like that. Yes, I'm supposed to be loving, but praise be to Christ that he made a way. Praise be to Christ that he paid my penalty. Praise be to Christ that when God looks at me, he doesn't see what I'm not and I don't have to defend myself because Christ is what I should have been and he's already paid it. Christ defended on my behalf. We need to be a people that understand our need for Christ and not rely on our own capabilities or our own uh, desire to vindicate ourselves. We must be a people that are filled with so much grace and mercy because of it's been extended to us that we radically extend it to our enemies. Let's keep reading. Mark chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 17 and 18. And someone from the crowd answered, And teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Ah, now we understand why they were arguing. Now we understand at least the topic at hand. And it, it could have been about the origin, origin of the demon, whether it was his sins or his parents' sins. It could have been about Christ's authority over the demons, the demonic. Uh, it could have been about the disciples' capabilities. We, we don't know specifically what they were arguing about, but we do know it was related to this boy, and his, uh, and his demon that he had. We know for sure that the demonic activity was center stage. Now again, this should be no surprise here because where there are detractors of the faith, the enemy is not far behind. We need to be careful here because we are faced with the age-old debate, and that's that whether something is originated by de- demonic activity or natural occurrence. Modern critics would look at this text and say that this is a, just a young boy that is, has undiagnosed and undiscovered epilepsy because they don't have the modern medical advances that they need to do that. And it's not demon, demonic activity. Well, maybe that's true, but what we do need to know first and foremost, that if the Bible calls something demonic activity, we ought to treat it as such. We shouldn't explain it away just because we don't understand it. That's not a position that would help us very much at all. We have to be careful not to ignore the fact that what's happening in front of us at all times, when we're sleeping and when we're not, is a spiritual war that is greater than what we see in front of us. It is constantly taking place. We need to be careful not to explain away a spiritual war just because we see a physical battle. There is an unseen cosmic spiritual war that is that we are engaged in at any point. And here's where the enemy wins, and he's been doing it from the beginning. He takes good and true things, and he twists them to dishonor God and disrupt his people. Let me be more specific. He takes physical battles in front of us and tries to terminate our desires, our hopes, and our values on those immediate physical battles instead of understanding that everything in our life is instructive and there's a spiritual war happening beyond it. So the enemy would love you to believe that your battles ought to be fought in the political sphere, The enemy would love you to believe that real battles are fought in the philosophical or ideological sphere. The enemy would love you to believe that your spouse is the problem or that your kids are the problem or that your job is the problem. The enemy would love you to believe that your Calvinist brother or Arminian brother is the problem. Sometimes because he's crafty, he would direct our target away from even those things and have you believe that God is the problem. You fill in the blank, but he would never have you be reminded that those things are but surface-level battles that are actually pointing to a spiritual war that's taking place beyond it at all times. It's a deep war that is infused in every level of our society, and if we just but took a step back, we could see the enemy working in front of us. It's important for us to remember that even when we look at the enemy's activities in scripture, before the enemy possesses or troubles a person, he always exploits frailties that already exist. So he's not, the enemy is not a creator. He doesn't have creative like qualities like God does. So he's just going to use what's already there. He's going to take a, a door that's been cracked open in the soul and he's going to expose it. Or he's going to take a crack that's in the heart and he's going to wound it. He's only going to exploit what's already there. So in this case with the disciples, it may have been that this young man was suffering with epilepsy, but it was exacerbated by the intervention of the evil one to torment him all the more. So for us, does that mean that politics are important? Is our job important? Family, family vitality important? Is money important? Yes. All of those things are important, and all of those things are good for us and given to us by God. But they serve a greater purpose in a battle that is greater than you and I. The father of this child knew this and he was desperate for his child to be set free. He knew that this was bigger than him. He knew that this wasn't just something they needed to go sit and wait in the, in the doctor's office and hopefully get triaged and give given medicine to get better. He knew it was bigger than that. There was demonic activity afoot and his son needed to no longer be possessed or oppressed. He knew that this was the opportunity that he needed to seek God. He needed to seek the one who had the power over life and death. Let's keep reading. Mark chapter 9:19. 9, and he answered them, "O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me," talking about the boy. So just as Moses was displeased at the lack of faith when he came down from the mountain, so Christ is also displeased with his disciples, who he is calling the faithless generation because they ought to know better. But the fact that this is directed at the disciples and not the crowd is important for us here because it's natural to think that given the context of the the question and the context of the conversation that he's talking to the father. He's talking to the father that just doesn't have enough faith for his son to be healed. That's not what's going on here. He's talking to the disciples. He's referencing their lack of faith. This is important for us because the default is that as we mature, our hearts bend away from dependence. They bend towards our dependence on our abilities and away from a dependence on God. In our society, knowledge and experience hold a lot of value and oftentimes to a fault. I empathize with this because... I understand how negatively this can impact you. I have a very obsessive personality. My wife can attest to this. I don't know a lot about a lot of things, but I know a lot about a few things that I obsess over. And this is what led me to become good at woodworking because my wife uh, decided that she wanted a table on Etsy that was about $2,500. And I said, nope, that's not happening. So for $700, I can get good at woodworking, buy all the equipment and the wood and make it happen. And so I, all, in almost all areas of my life when my focus gets on it, it's fixated in one laser-like direction and I, and I obsess over it. And it, it, all that I, all that I understand and all that I do is about that one thing. And as I get better, I get more confident. and as I get more confident, I honestly start to make more mistakes because the, the reverence no longer exists there. And this is what you see happening with the disciples. Obviously, crowds are following Jesus. Uh, there's twice in this passage alone, You had a great crowd come and want to be around him. Twice, the disciples more than all of these crowds had more time with Jesus than anyone else. They heard all the stories, they heard all the proverbs, they heard all the uh, all the corrections, they heard everything that that one would want to learn by following Jesus. They heard it all, so you could imagine the amount of confidence that they walked in. And then not only that, but. We learned earlier on in Mark chapter 6 that hey, they had already cast out demons. In fact, cast out many demons. And so you could imagine that as they walked up to just this single boy that they, they should be able to do this, no problem. But that was the problem. The real problem was their confidence that they had in themselves and not their confidence and dependence upon Christ. There's never a moment where we as believers graduate from where we begin Yes we will mature, yes we will move forward, but we never graduate from the from our need for the gospel. I've heard it say by one pastor one time that it's the gospel's not the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z. It's everything. Everything that we know, everything that we believe centers around and comes back to Christ and what he's done for us. So why can why can Jesus tell the disciples as he's leaving this earth? Why can he tell them, hey, go and make disciples? Because I I think like theoretically he shouldn't do that. We don't do that anywhere else. In our jobs, you would never hire someone who has zero experience and tell them, hey, uh, go start training someone. You'd never do that. It doesn't make sense. It's irresponsible even. But when Jesus commissions his disciples, he says, go and make disciples who are going to make disciples. Why would you do that? Well, because the only requirement is that you believe. The requirement is not that you're some robust theologian. The requirement is not that you're this massive prayer warrior that has seen hundreds come to faith because of your incredible evangelistic skills. No, the the requirement's faith. The requirement is belief. And we never graduate from there. The place that we ought to always be is a person with a heart like a child, faith like a child. that puts their heart, puts their faith in Christ and walks forward in that kind of obedience. Let's keep reading. Mark chapter nine, verse 20. And they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Time and time again, the presence of Jesus invokes a nasty response from a demon. Apart from Christ. We, like this boy, stand no chance. Every time Christ is around, the enemy cannot stand to be in the presence of his holiness. And just like this boy, time a great work of the kingdom begins to happen, the enemy is always going to react in our lives. It never fails. Theologian John Calvin said it this way, The presence of Christ awakens the demon like the sound of a trumpet. He raises as violent a storm as he can and contends with all his might. He ought to be, he ought to be, we ought to be prepared beforehand with such meditations that our faith may not be disturbed when the approach of the grace of Christ is met, more than, met by more than ordinary violence on the part of our enemy. Friends, over the last 14 years that I've spent in ministry, the enemy plays out his works the same way every time. He plays the same cards every time. And doesn't just play the same cards every time. He plays the same cards face up in front of you. There's never a moment where he's not trying to cause division or trying to, trying to divert you away from God. He's doing the same thing every time. He wants to divert a relationship between you and God and a relationship between you and others. That's all that, he's do- all that he is trying to do at every point. And I've seen moments where people have been disrupted in a myriad of ways, and whether that's their belief in Christ, renewed faith in Christ, whether that's a call to leadership, whether that's obedience. And sometimes what that looks like is it's very clear that the spirit has called you to do something. And instead of you just going and being obedient and doing it, you come up with a really good neutral reason why you can do that later. Or, It's not rational for you to do that. Friends, delayed obedience is disobedience. Because what you end up doing is you end up saying, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Yes, I agree with you, God, but I'll do it later. I'll do it on my time. There's this really cool story, and uh, if you've ever read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, there's a a moment um, in the book, and this book is about a... Lesser demon and a greater demon, and they're, they're talking to one another and how the lesser demon's interacting into the world and, and preventing people from knowing Jesus. And there's this moment uh, where this man who's been struggling with his faith but is starting to really consider Christ. He's sitting in a library, and he starts to consider the things of God. And as he starts to consider them, the lesser demon is talking to him and says, man, you know what, that's, that's an incredible thought. It's a great thought. In fact, I think you should think more on it. In fact, it's such a great thought in that you should think more on it that you shouldn't do it on an empty stomach. Let's go get lunch, and then when we come back, we'll be able to devote our full attention to it. So the man stands up, and he leaves the library, and he walks a little bit down the road and arrives at the bus stop, and before he could even get there, he's already forgotten about it. That's the work that the enemy does. He will take good and neutral things and divert you away from being obedient. Divert you away from faith. Divert you away from what you're supposed to do. I mean, odds are the enemy's hardly ever going to put a big sign up with negative things, with bad things, with unethical things in front of you and then just hope to draw you that way. That's, most of the time is not going to happen. He's more crafty than that. Instead, he'll take something good, and wonderful that God has given you and, and get you to turn it into something it's not. Get you to look at it in a way that tries to resemble God. And what that does is not only devoid of its value, but it saps your soul. And so the enemy plays the same cards every time because at the end of the day, the enemy hates God. He hates God because he thinks he should be there. He hates God because he was cast out for trying to get there. And more than that, he doesn't just hate God. He hates God's bride. He hates the church. And he doesn't just hate the church, but specifically, he hates you. And I think that's important for you to know. It's important for you to know that there's an enemy out there who is actively working against you and your family. He hates you. And will do anything he can to divert you away from the good things that God has given you. He will do anything to divert you away from the good God that loves you. He'll convince you that you're unlovable. He'll convince you that there's nothing that that can save you. You've just sinned too much. Or you're too far gone. You haven't read your Bible long enough. How could I approach it now? Friends, the enemy may hate you, and he may, be do, he may be doing all that he can to prevent you, but God is greater than him. Christ has already broken those chains in your life. They, he may convince you that you still have them on, but you don't. If you have put in your faith in Christ, you are free. You are free, and you can walk. And you don't have to do what he convinces you to do, and you don't have to not come to church or not read your Bible or not pray just because you spent time in delayed obedience. You have a God that loves you and God fights ferociously for his children. We need to be a people that fling ourselves in the direction of Christ. The old adage says that there's nobody that can wake up the king in the middle of the night for a warm glass of milk except for the kid. Friends, you are that child you can confidently approach the throne. You can confidently approach the king and you don't have to make caveats. In the same way that the younger prodigal son that ran away and returned home prepared a speech and the father wouldn't even let him get it out because he just was happy that his son was home. All you need to be is just home. He wants you there. Let's keep reading. Verse number 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And he has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. See, what's interesting with this, what's going on here in this scenario versus a scenario that happened earlier with a paralytic man, is you had the difference between someone questioning Jesus's willingness and Jesus's capability. See, with the paralytic man, he said, if you will, heal me. And Jesus responds, I will. Because the man was questioning whether or not Jesus would even be willing to because people had so avoided him all of his life. They wanted nothing to do with him. So he questioned Jesus's willingness. Here, with this moment, this father, he wasn't questioning his willingness because he had seen his disciples be willing. But he was questioning whether or not he could. And that's because, once again, he was lumping Jesus into the same fold as, as the disciples. Just as Peter did on the top of the, of, of the mountain, so are these uh, disciples doing the same thing. They're lumping themselves in the same category. But Jesus is not. He's set apart. He's holy. And so Jesus, in this moment, is not only willing, but he's capable. It's in these moments that we get to see a real incredible part of the heart of God because Jesus always shows compassion and patience together. We see this whenever he takes his time with Lazarus. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows that if he waits a certain amount of time, Lazarus is going to die and it will be, be sure that the body's done. And he shows up. He knows that after three days, it'll it'll be done for sure. So he shows up on the fourth day and he sits there and he receives the berating from all of the family members that are mad at him for who because he could have came a lot sooner. And he doesn't try to defend himself, but he sits there and he weeps with him. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows what he's going to do. But he takes the patient route because he wants to teach a greater lesson. And even in this moment with This with this guy who's this young boy who's suffering with epilepsy and a demon He's actively convulsing in front of everyone right now as they're talking and jesus is saying He's asking questions You know the questions that you would get in the doctor's office. So how long have you felt this pain? What about when I press here? He's having that kind of conversation with him right now And he's taking his time. He's being patient Even the fact that he asks how long has this been happening to him is a sign and show of compassion towards the Father. He understands. But don't mistake this compassion and this patience for his inability. Everything is resolved in God's perfect timing. Jesus was offended at the skepticism because once again, he was not going to be considered just any normal man, any normal disciple. They failed. He will not. Okay, let's keep running. We're running a little bit low on time. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and arose. You see, friends, in in this moment, it's important to understand that there is a massive difference between unbelief and non-belief. And I think the difference is very encouraging for the believer. Because oftentimes, what Christians will do, who will describe people that are not Christian, they'll say that they are unbelievers. And what that does at times is that creates a connotation that if you ever struggle with belief at all, then you must not be a real Christian. If you ever struggle with doubt, you must not be a real Christian. How dare you repent of your unbelief? But there's, there's a difference here because I'll, while your belief may be small and you may struggle with a little bit of unbelief at the time, that doesn't remove your status as a child. However, Unbelief is different than non-belief, where non-belief says, no, you don't exist, I don't care what you have to say, I don't believe in you. That's a willing disbelief, whereas unbelief is almost unwilling. Unbelief is, yes, I do trust that God is real and that he has loved me and made a way for me, but just struggling to really hold on to that right now. That's unbelief. Unbelief non-belief would be like, get out of here with that God stuff. Those are two wildly different things. And in the same way, in the book of 1 John, he basically goes out and says that you can't say that you're not sinning, but if you do sin, there's a real problem here. So it's like, well, okay, well, which one is it? Am I a sinner or can I not sin? But then later on in the book of John, he says, but those who practice lawlessness, those who practice make a practice of sin. As in like, there's a, there's a, for sure going to be an element of every single believer where sin is a part of your life, but there's a difference between that being there and you being sanctified and you willingly saying, I don't care what the Bible says about this. I'm going to do it anyways. There's a difference between unbelief and non-belief. Every Christian who has trusted in Christ underneath the sound of my voice has some level of authentic saving faith in his or her heart. However, the intensity of that faith is not constant. It waxes, it wanes, it increases, and it diminishes. And no matter how strong your faith is, there are moments in this life where it is assaulted by the enemy. And sometimes it can seem as if your faith is barely hanging on, and you make a prayer much like this man made to Jesus. And you say something like, I believe. I believe not perfect. It's not pure. It's not even strong. I need help. Help me with my unbelief. But I think it begs the question, okay, well then how much belief, how much faith do we need? A lot? A little? What do we do here? Must it be perfect? The answer to all of those is no. In the book of Matthew 17, we learn that even the faith the size of a tiny little mustard seed will do just fine, fine enough to cast mountains into the sea. You see, the key is not the depth of our faith, but the direction of our faith. What's important is not the potency of our faith, but the person that our faith is in. We need to understand that at the end end of the day, we're not going to be perfect on this side of heaven. And so our faith may wane at times, but at the end of the day, as long as we are pursuing Christ, we're being faithful. Sometimes we get so caught up in what we aren't that we lose sight of what we actually are. Sometimes we get so caught up in what we're not doing that we lose sight that we are a child of God. And nothing can change that. I've used this example before, but my, my son could come into this room right now, slap me in the face, run off, and he's 10 years old so he wouldn't get far, but he could run off forever and say, "I'll never want to see you ever again," and never talk to me for the rest of his life. And as heartbreaking as that may be, what never changes is that he is my son. He can change his name all, he's want, all he wants. Never speak of me again. Still my son. Nothing changes that. We need to stop getting caught up in what we are and what we aren't and be really focused on the identity that we have in Christ as a child of God. Verse number 28 And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? Talking about the demon. A moment of humility and clarity for the disciples was right before them. The disciples had failed big time. Uh, It was, even as uh, Brendan and I often mock at each other, it was indeed a public fail. A public fail brought ridicule, cast doubt on their master and their mission, and filled them with self-doubt. So when Jesus initiated this reflection and debriefing, they asked themselves, why couldn't we drive the demon out? Their question betrays a sense of confidence in their own strengths and even own experience that they had. Because so like we said, in Mark chapter 9, they had, or Mark chapter 6, they'd already cast out many demons. So if they did it before, they'll do it again. But it didn't work this time, and I think they had to ask themselves why. And the truth is, is that oftentimes in our life, we will experience these levels of failure. And you can either hide behind those failures or you can allow them to be teaching moments that help you help direct your heart and shepherd you back to God. Every moment that we have in our life is instructive. There's never a passive moment where it's not instructing us to become more like Christ. And the more and more that we see our life operating this way, where everything is instructive, the more and more that we will see failures as platforms, see spri- failures as platforms. Springboards into the grace of God. The disciples here missed it. But the truth is, is that they fell into the great hands of Jesus. And Jesus said back to them, this cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And the, just like earlier, the ESV also misses a, a very critical part of this translation. Yeah, because most manuscripts that we see, it doesn't just say prayer, it says prayer and fasting. And uh, and I think that's an important aspect because there's a level of dependence that comes with prayer and fasting that you cannot get anywhere else. The disciples couldn't cast the demon out because they were prideful. They couldn't cast the demon out because they had lacked dependence. They couldn't cast the demon out because Well, we learn in a couple passages later, they're worried about who the greatest is. And they get in an argument on the road about which one's better than the other. The truth is, is that they lacked a dependence on God and prayer and fasting encourage that kind of dependence. Because when you pray, what you're doing is you're you're simply saying, God, I don't have it in me to do what you're asking me to do. I don't have it in me to be obedient. I don't have it in me to be faithful. I need you to do something. And fasting is is saying, God, I don't desire to have anything in my life but you. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. God, it's you. It's you alone that I need. Prayer and fasting give themselves over to a believer walking in faithfulness. When we experience this kind of humility that the disciples experience, when we experience weakness and trial, it's here that the strength of Christ reigns in our heart. And it can't reign anywhere else. There's not room for it. If there's anything other than vulnerability, weakness, transparency, and things that, that would allow us to depend on God, if there's anything other than that, then the strength of Christ does not reign God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our lives become void of peace and joy when we try to do this on our own, as the disciples did. Second Corinthians 12:9 through10 talks about this level of weakness and vulnerability that ought to be in the heart of the believer. This is the Apostle Paul saying, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, when I am not full of myself, I am full of Christ. For the sake of not beating a dead horse, what I want to do is I want to read a hymn to close out our service and, and then I'll pray for us. But this, this hymn is it's called Just When I Need Him Most, written by Oliver Poole. It's an, an incredible hymn, and I I read it and it it invoked so much worship in my soul. I hope it does the same thing for you as we close out this morning of worship. It says this Just when I need him, Jesus is near, just when I falter, just when I fear, ready to help me, ready to cheer, just when I need him most. Just when I need him, Jesus is true, never forsaken, all the way through, giving for burdens, pleasures anew, just when I need him most. Just when I need him, Jesus is strong, bearing my burdens all the day long, for all my sorrow, giving a song, just when I need him most. Just when I need him, he is my all, answering when upon him I call, tenderly watching lest I should fall, just when I need him most. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you humbly. There's no other place that we could go. There's no other place that we ought to be and sitting before you. And so God where our faith has waned, we pray that you would strengthen it. God where we have tried to hide behind a false sense of strength, our own strength, so that we could avoid the pains of weakness. God, we pray that you would encourage us to be near to you. Encourage us to see that it's in you that we are made strong, that our weaknesses our platforms for your grace and your mercy. And so, God, while we struggle here, we pray that you would give us the courage to confess the sin that we need. Give us the fortitude to, to stand strong when the enemy tries to attack. And God, help us have the faith that can move mountains. God, it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.